0: The Structural Engineering Channel podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network, which can be found at cement.media. That's cement, C-E-M-E-N-T dot media. Welcome to this episode of the Structural Engineering Channel podcast, a podcast focused on helping structural engineering professionals stay up to date on technical trends in the field and to help them succeed in their careers and lives.
1: In this episode, we're talking to Peter Vanderzee, President and CEO at Lifespan Technologies, about his career journey and experience transitioning from electronics to chemical to environmental to geotechnical, and then finally to structural engineering. He also shares some great strategies and tips for startup engineering firms.
0: I'm your co host, Matt Picardle.
1: And I'm your co host, Kara Green.
0: Before we get started, this is a free show and our sponsors help us to keep it free. So now I'd like to recognize our sponsor for this episode, Menard Group USA. Menard's techniques include controlled modulus columns, wick drains, earthquake drains, stone columns, dynamic compaction, rapid impact compaction, and slow mixing. Typical projects include warehouses, buildings, material storage piles, processing areas, embankments, roadways, port facilities, storage tanks, containment structures, and platforms. In many cases, ground improvement is less costly than traditional approaches such as removal and replacement or piling systems. Monard works closely with civil, structural, and geotechnical engineers to minimize foundation costs for wide ranges of soil conditions, structure types, and loading conditions. To learn more about Menard Group USA or for help on your next project, please visit www.menardgroupusa.com. That's www.menardgroupusa.com. Now let's jump into our conversation of the week with Peter.
1: Peter, welcome to the show. We've talked a little bit about how you are the CEO of Lifespan Technologies. Can you please tell our listeners what you do daily?
2: I try to do a lot of things daily, as a matter of fact. Everywhere from getting new customers to making sure projects are completed on time and on budget to uh, collecting money to dispensing money and uh, all in between. So uh, I have kind of a broad view of what I do every day and uh, a little bit of everything. It consumes most of my day.
0: What were the biggest challenges you faced when starting uh, Lifespan Technologies? I know it's not your typical firm, so how was that in terms of uh, starting it up and getting it off the ground?
2: We had a number of different challenges. Let me tell you about a few. First of all, staffing. I mean, who was going to take the risk and join with me to try to build this company? That was a tough one, and we had to start there. Second, financing. Did we need money, or could we plod along without any investment? We decided eventually to avoid third-party investment, which was to our benefit. Third, hardware and software development. Who was going to design it? Who was going to configure it? Who was going to build it? Who was going to operate it? Another difficult problem that we faced and solved. And last but not least, uh, I would say, and probably the biggest challenge, was marketing. How were we going to explain to potential customers that they needed something they never have purchased before? There were three sort of sub-challenges below that. How do I talk my way into potential customer offices where they would give me an hour to explain this? How am I going to provide them a compelling story? What is the value proposition that I'm offering to them? And then, of course, you know, how are we going to spread the word? And we wanted to do it at the least possible cost, so we decided we were going to write articles and white papers that various publications would pick up and explain the benefits of our technology. So I think you can see in my answer there were a myriad of challenges. They're still ongoing today. This is part of being an entrepreneur. Challenges come. You've got to face them. You've got to do the best you can with them. And they always seem to pop up when you least expect them.
1: And I love that you mentioned all of those different aspects because... Some of our listeners, and we've talked about it before, is like getting outside of your comfort zone. And in my current position, I've had similar experiences where you're responsible for so many different aspects uh, in regards to one job. And it sounds as though you were, obviously, as the CEO, kind of a part of everything. And you mentioned marketing. I don't think people understand how difficult marketing can be to get someone's time And to make what you said a compelling story. So I appreciate you kind of bringing that up because I know, were you ever involved in the marketing aspects? Because engineering and marketing are two different worlds. Creating a story that includes not only the facts of like an engineering brain or how the engineering brain works, but also making it a compelling, and you said it, story did you work on that? Like, did you support your marketing department? Were you the marketing department? How did that look?
2: I was and continue to be the marketing department. You're quite correct in saying that marketing and engineering sometimes are two different roads. Marketing requires some really conceptual, maybe nonlinear thinking, whereas engineering, of course, is very linear. And, you know, the hard part is trying to find the value proposition, not find it, if you will, but develop it such that it becomes a compelling story. And I like to think of it as, what does it take for somebody to pull their wallet out of their back pocket and give you money out of the wallet? What is it that you're going to tell them that they're going to be willing to take that wallet out and hand you money? It's a very difficult thing to do. And uh, one of the old time uh, management thinkers, Peter Drucker, used to say, marketing and innovation are the only two areas in a business that create value. Having done marketing for lifespan for nearly 20 years now, I can tell you that I am completely sold on that that comment that Peter Drucker made years and years ago. This is where the value is created.
1: I'm going to take a little bit of spin because you mentioned, you know, we went over it in your bio and we talked about it a little bit, is that you have obviously an engineering background. And when I think of engineers, I think of myself, but I also think of engineers I've spoken with, this feeling of being risk averse. And I kind of wanted to ask you, you know, when you structured lifespan technologies at the startup, what did you do to reduce any risks? Did you take did you do anything unusual? Because we do have listeners that have potentially thought about, you know, starting their own company, going out and doing consulting just themselves. Do you have any kind of information that you could share on like reducing risk, or something unusual you did when you created
2: Lifespan? Very interesting question, and uh, it's very timely and important for anyone who is considering leaving, for example, a corporate situation and going out on their own. When we started Lifespan, we knew that the uptake on technology was going to be slow because we were going to sell into the public entity market, that is, state DOTs principally they are not quick decision makers. They, Instead of uh, looking at a stopwatch, they're looking at a sundial in terms of how they're they're actually going to make a decision. We decided in order to reduce our risk financially, we were going to have zero ongoing overhead. Now, I was able to recruit people to work with me who didn't have to have a salary every two weeks, which was very helpful. And we decided to subcontract almost every bit of the work that we did to install and operate turnkey uh, solutions. For example, we had a subcontractor who did electronics manufacturing. We had a subcontractor who did our datacom and data presentation. We had no advertising. We weren't spending money on that. We used the media to spread the marketing message, and the media is always looking for good stories. We tried to create a good story so the media would pick those up. We also decided to use customer-generated funds to support our marketing costs. In other words, we were going to allow our customers to support the growth of our business. And when I say the cost of that, I mean personal visits, presentations, industry conferences, and so forth. Probably most importantly, we found a compatible firm in the Atlanta area who would conduct turnkey installations for us and provide our working capital. Even though we essentially sold the solution, they actually took the contract to execute the solution and we became a subcontractor to them, which allowed them to provide us working capital. It dramatically reduced our risk in terms of contract and uh, liability and so forth. But as a trade-off, it lowered our revenue. We were very comfortable with that. We've had that in place for nearly 20 years and it still continues to be a very good solution. We also, another way to avoid risks uh, and low prices, we avoided competitive bidding. We didn't want to get into a how low you can go uh, scenario. So we decided we were going to do sole source procurements, meaning we had to convince owners that it was in their best interest to use our solutions on their structures and particularly bridges. And for that, we would give them a price and basically say, here it is, take it or leave it. And it has worked very, very well for the better part of 20 years.
0: Thanks for that, Peter. That's really interesting about the the bidding process. I, I work in the building industry, so there's a lot of uh, low bids going on. And yeah, you can kind of see how it affects the industry even as a whole. But even if you're in that market for the lowest bid, your firm's not... <laughs> I mean, you're going to get like Walmart low prices and it just keeps getting lower. You can't really sell your value when you are trying to do the low bid uh, thing. So
1: that's really interesting to hear that. Yeah, Walmart low prices, but also Walmart quality.
2: Yeah, and, and let me expand a little bit on that. And that is, you know, we in our marketing messaging and value proposition, we had to come up with a way to explain how our customers were going to achieve a return on their investment. That was not in place when we started Lifespan. And fairly spoken, we were the ones that devised this for the industry. And basically, it went like this, that if you use our solution and we show you that the structure we're monitoring is in better to much better structural condition than you think, the work that you had planned, say a major repair or a replacement, can be safely deferred. And that produces substantial financial benefits for the owner. Once we told them that, and of course, we've had a few experience that, uh, it became a lot easier to market our services.
0: Peter, what are your biggest disappointments and maybe successes in lifespan technologies? I know like the failure rate for new companies and startups is probably in the 90 percentiles, as a lot of people know. What were some of the failures and how did you get over those or how did you deal with those? Uh, and maybe some of the successes as well.
2: Well, if you don't mind, I'm a positive person. I'd like to start out with the successes. We'll go on to the disappointments in a minute. We have several successes that I, I feel really good about. Number one, we, we saved our customers more than $500 million in unnecessary replacement spending. They were able to safely defer that. And that is, you know, when you even consider that at 3% or 5% the cost of money, that, that's a big number. I think that's a real success on our part and for our customers. Another success, we've been widely recognized as a thought leader in the industry. In fact, probably the thought leader. And as I mentioned earlier, the development of the value proposition for this technology and these solutions. That is a key element of this. We were the ones that I think really pioneered that and were known for that. Thirdly, to best of my knowledge, we were the first company who recognized and was able to explain the crucial relationship between ambient temperature changes and captured strain data. I don't think there's any document that I've ever found in the better part of 20 years that had a good explanation for this. And that is when a structure like a bridge is in the full sun, you know, you get different strain readings than you would from a live load. And the ability to separate the strain, the temperature induced strain from the live load induced strain, has proven to be an incredibly valuable piece of information for owners when they realize that the live load strains from trucks and cars going over a bridge, for example, is probably anywhere between 10 and 30 or 40% of the total strain values. Whereas the total strain values may look high, much of that was only caused by temperature, which is completely uncontrollable and really doesn't affect the operation of your bridge. Fourth thing that I would call a success is we have achieved really superb system reliability. And this was one of our goals when we started the company. We were insistent that everything we did would result in at least 10 years of operation without any maintenance or um, failures in the field. So in other words, when we installed a solution for a customer. They could pretty much count on 10 years of life of that minimum without any kind of interruption of the data flow or any maintenance or any recalibration. It was just a plug-and-play solution, and we've proven that several times, most recently on a bridge on the, coast of the east coast. North Carolina where we went through three hurricanes and two winter storms. Our system was operating on batteries and a solar recharge system. We never missed a data point over several years despite 100-plus mile-an-hour winds and salt spray and you name it, every environmental negative force that you could imagine. And it worked like a charm. So those are four, I think, our successes. Now, disappointments, let me move on to that one very disappointed in the slow uptake of the technologies by the DOTs. As I said earlier, you know, their decision-making goes on sundials. You know, I'd like to see them on stopwatches. But that's the way it is. And we kind of knew that going into this. And that's why we structured to have zero overhead. Because without having to pay a monthly overhead allowance, we could last, you know, indefinitely until we had, you know, customers signing up for our services. But nonetheless. I would have rather this had been a much more rapid uptake of technology. This is a second disappointment. We didn't get much support from regulatory agencies. For example, the Federal Highway Administration and ASHTO, which is the uh, governing body of the state DOTs. They really weren't willing to get their hands dirty, if you will, and dig into the benefits of this technology and then turn around and talk about it in public forums or write articles or even emails and other communications to their constituents. They have not done a good job at that, and that's been disappointing for us. Thirdly, the inability to influence legislation, national transportation legislation, to fund technology deployment. I've tried this many times. I've been to Capitol Hill lobbying, I don't know, 20 times at least in the last 20 years. And it's very, very difficult to get legislators to listen. First of all, listen. Second of all, really understand what you're trying to tell them, and then putting it into words in legislation that would result in having some money used as a inducement or grant to use the technology. These disappointments are ongoing. But you know, we deal with them and we just move on. So that's sort of a summary of our successes and disappointments. You've
1: had a a very experienced career and you've had changes in your career from electronics to chemical to environmental to geotech, and now you've settled it sounds into more of a structural engineering role. How were you able to switch between these disciplines? how it was to transition to now become a market leader where you are.
2: With a strong engineering education, you can go a long way in today's technological world. The foundational principles that you learned as an undergraduate in particular are just crucial, not only to go in one direction, but if you wanted to go like I have done in multiple directions over a career, there are some key concepts that are similar in various fields, in various disciplines. Early on in my career, I recognized that Newton's formula, F equals MA, is the foundation to allow you to work in different disciplines. It's one thing in physics. It's another thing in structural engineering. It's another thing in chemical engineering. And to some degree, even geotech and electronics. Voltage is related to current and resistance. Isaac Newton was a really brilliant guy, but when you got introduced to F equals MA as a freshman in physics class, if that really got into the back of your brain, it allowed you to go into the various different fields. So I think that was a, a thing I learned early and I still recognize as, as important to be able to switch from discipline to discipline. Thirdly, having two different engineering degrees that I have, undergraduate in mechanical and graduate in industrial. Gave me a broader perspective on how to solve technical problems, rather than just a focus on one particular discipline. There are things that I've done with lifespan that were critical for me. And that I, what I learned in graduate school in terms of statistical analysis, analysis of variance, and so forth, that we've used in structural engineering in lifespan technologies. So that too, you know, the broader your your view, the broader your background, the broader and the more depth you have in terms of the engineering disciplines, the better. Every time I entered a new position, my career has been nothing but new positions. Every time I went into something, I was the first guy there. I worked for a big company and they said, okay, next month you're going to do strategic planning. I said, well, I don't know anything about strategic planning. They said, yeah, you'll figure it out. No problem. I read a lot. I read everything I could read, got books and magazines and periodicals and everything, and I asked a lot of questions. And that's how you get up to speed. And and I think that's an important lesson for anybody that wants to move from discipline to discipline. I think lastly, the point I'd like to make is that I recognized early on that engineers don't have all the answers. In a business, you have to sell something to create revenue. And in a business, you have to carefully manage your costs that can result in actual earnings. And if you don't have earnings, you don't have a business. The marketing people add a lot of value. The accounting people add a lot of value. The salespeople add a lot of value. All these typically are, um, in many respects, anathema to engineers. There was a time in, in my career when I looked at a sales guy going, where did you come from selling uh, you know, aluminum siding from some house or something? You look down on it because your education was a lot more rigorous. But you know, I learned, and I learned this early, the ability to sell something, and that includes marketing, too, because you have to position the sale. Marketing and sales critically important. If you're an engineer and you can do that, you've got two legs up on your competition. It's very, very crucial. It's been an interesting career. Yes, I've moved from electronics to chemical engineering to environmental to geotech, now structural. It's been fun. I've had to learn a lot, but that's helped me enjoy every year that I've worked. So I would highly recommend it. To anyone listening to the podcast, it comes with difficulty. You'll have to put a lot of effort into it to do this.
0: That's uh, really interesting. It's basically, you don't know how to do something, but you'll figure it out. You have your engineering background, your problem-solving skills that you've learned, and you'll figure out the technical skills in that new field. But also, as you mentioned, you know the business side of things, how important that is, because you'll basically be out of the job if you don't have your marketers or salespeople So realizing how important all those uh, wheels or all those cogs in the machine run uh, will definitely make you better. I also had a question about these different size organizations in your career. Seems like you've worked for government, big businesses, small businesses, startups. What were some of the pros and cons of working for those different types of environments?
2: Let me start with government. Then I'll move to big business and then to startups. Let's look at government. The pros of government, you know, the more I think about it, I can only find one, and that is you'll never get fired. Stability is your thing. Work for the government, you'll be fine if you want to be stable, okay? You're not going to make a lot of money, but you won't get fired. Cons with the government, I've been able to come up with a few more cons. Number one, you won't advance very quickly, and you're probably never going to earn what you're worth. I did work for the government for a number of years, actually for the U.S. Army uh, Electronics Command, and um, I just didn't enjoy going to work every day. And I was on under a contract. As soon as my contract was up, I bolted for something else. The first one is you just won't advance quickly. It's not going to happen. And to the point I made earlier, decisions in government are made using sundials, not stopwatches. And they're never made by you. So no matter how smart you are, No matter how accomplished you are, you're not going to make the decision. Somebody else will, a committee, a higher level group, Congress, whoever, but you're not going to make the decision. And if you're an entrepreneurial person, it doesn't sit well with you, okay? You want to make the decisions. You want to live and, and die by your decision making. Third, a con for the government is your good idea, no matter how good it is, is less important than following the rules developed by others. What do I mean by that? Let's assume you're a young engineer working for a state DOT. You're 24 years old, you're a structural engineer, you have a master's degree, you went to a great school, and you know you think you're smart, probably smarter than anybody else on the planet. You come up with a great idea one day. You go to your boss and you say, you know what? I figured out how to do X, Y, and Z. And we can build bridges or we could build roadways or we could do this, that, or the next thing cheaper, faster, better if we do it the way I just Develop the idea I just developed. What's going to happen in government is your boss is going to look at you cross eyed and say, You see that stack of books over there on the wall? Those are the codes we follow. Okay? I'm not interested in your new idea. I'm interested in you following all those codes because that's how we stay out of trouble. In my view, that's a con, especially if you're an entrepreneurial type person, to have somebody tell you, I'm not interested in your great idea. I'm interested in you following the rules. Boy, that's a deal killer in my view. Anyway, that's the government. One pro, three cons. Let me move on to big business. The pros working for a big business, or really any size business, it's a good learning environment for young engineers. You go to work for a good company, they're financially stable, they give you opportunities to move in different positions and learn a lot, and they have stable employment, and your earnings are pretty reasonable. It's good. And it's a good foundation. And, and it may last somewhere between you know five to 10 years, but it's a good start for you. What are the cons for business? Well, the bigger the business you're in, the limited upside you have over a career. It's hard to make an impact when you're in a uh, business that's selling $25 billion a year. Your million-dollar business that you run, or even $10 million business, is, they won't even find it. So it's difficult to make an impact. Frankly, the younger you are in a business environment, the easier it is to terminate you in a downturn. You're not paid as much, uh, you haven't had, don't have the longevity in the organization, and when it comes time for reduction in force, your name's probably going to come up before somebody else's. So that's a con, in my view. Now let's move on to startups. What are the pros in startups? Most importantly, and, and certainly the way I look at it, it's invigorating every day. You want to get out of bed in the morning, you want to go to work because you've got something powerful in terms of a product or service that somebody else needs or you can convince them they need, and this, you're solving problems. You're creating value every day. That gets your blood pressure up. That gets your smile up. You know, that makes you more interesting to talk to. So I think that's a real plus. Typically in a startup, your rewards are commensurate with marketplace success. If you join a startup and you're successful, your rewards, especially if you own some equity, are way beyond what you'd get working for a business, typically, or especially with the government, where you have no equity. You have the chance for great success, financially in particular. Psychologically, with a startup, this, if you have a personal need to make progress every day, I feel like i that's part of me. I have that. I want to do something important every day, or at least make headway towards something important. Instead, of treading water there's nothing for me to do today. You know, I'm bored. That's terrible. You don't want to go there. Startup, you always have something to do. It's always important. It always has a timeline, and it's always critical to the mission of the organization. So it depends on how you get your jollies, if you will. Finally, what are the cons of a startup? Well, number one, and I would hope that podcast listeners would hear me out on this one very carefully, this is the highest personal risk endeavor that you can get into. I think it's good early in your career, and it's good late in your career to do these kind of things in terms of startups. But it's very difficult when you have a family and you have financial and time responsibilities for the family. I have long thought that this was the case. Of course, when you're really young, especially if you're not married uh, and you don't have a family, you know, you can live anywhere, you can do anything, you get fired or the business fails, so what? You move on to the next thing. But when you've got children and they're getting ready to start college and, you know, you don't have enough savings to pay for their college education, starting a company at that particular point in your career is very, very risky the risk and the reward has to be considered the other con i don't know how anybody would think this through but you know there's uncertainty every day in a startup you don't know where your next customer is coming from you don't know whether you're going to get paid on time you don't know whether you're, the solution that you offered is going to work reliably so there's uncertainty every day if you cannot deal with uncertainty don't go into a startup is my advice but if you can if that invigorates you The uncertainty, the risk, the ability to control risk, overall risk in your in your employment, in your company, in your solution offerings, and so forth. Then it's an invigorating environment, and you'll want to go to work every day and and make something happen.
0: That was a great response. Uh, I really appreciate the pros and cons. I've been in uh, smaller sized companies, and I realize, like you were saying, that's the type of person that I am. I, I do like the working on new things. I think like what you said, you as a person in, in your career, you have to find out what works best for you. I know some people don't like the smaller side of things. Maybe they want to work in government, like you were saying, with stability and definitely the pros and cons. And it uh, depends on you, where you're at in your career, and your life. But I appreciate you going into those because some people, maybe all they've done are small companies and they don't really know what those other sides are like. So definitely appreciate that. Great answer.
1: I was listening to what you were saying and, you know, I can feel your passion in regards to what you're currently doing, which is the company that you own. But I was curious, you know, and it sounds as if you've had a very satisfying career. Are you planning to retire anytime soon? Or, you know, it sounds as though you still get up out of bed, ready to go to work every morning. Are you
2: going to continue working? Do I sound like a guy who wants to retire? Not at all, but I'm asking a question. <laughs> that word isn't in my vocabulary. I mean, I don't understand what that means. I've been very fortunate in my career. I have been to, let me see, 48 states, business travel and personal, of course, but mostly business. I've been to the bigger cities in this country 10 or 20 times over. I've been in uh, China, Japan, Taiwan. I've been to Europe. I've been to South America. Do I want to retire and travel? No, The travel thing is no, is no longer a part of me anymore. I don't really care. I don't want to sit on an airplane for 10 hours uh, anymore. But do I want to continue to make a difference? Do I want to continue to find new ideas and, and put things together that nobody's ever done before um, and learn more every day and read and absorb history more? And of course. I mean, why wouldn't I? That's what makes life interesting. And that's why I want to get up in the morning. Because I don't know everything. I never will. The more you learn, the I think the, the more satisfied you can be in your career. So no, the answer, short answer to your question is there's no way I'm retiring. I'm just going to reinvent myself. If we're at a runway or we decide to sell lifespan technologies and I'm no part of it anymore, I'll move on to something else. Maybe it's uh, serving on a board or two. Maybe it's doing some volunteer work but I've got to do something. And doing something means reading, learning, speaking to people that I normally wouldn't uh, come across on a daily basis, developing new relationships. There's so much to do. This whole concept of retirement is overrated. I mean, it's just, no, it keeps you young. So as long as my health holds out, and right now I'm very healthy, I'm going to do something five or six days a week to keep me busy and to make an impact. One of the um, interests that I've had in my entire life has been golf. I I just love playing golf. I've played on on many of the great courses across the country, either for business or pleasure or whatever. But a few years ago, I played two of the top-rated courses in the United States more than once, and that's um, Pine Valley in New Jersey and Augusta National here in Georgia. And I look at that like I've been to the mountaintop, that famous speech by Martin Luther King. It, you know, somebody wants to play golf, even though I love the sport, if we're not playing at those courses, how can I say yes? I mean, it's like I've already done that. <laughs> so I've got to come up with a new interest there. I'm not sure what it's going to be, but my golf skills aren't as good at age 72 as they were when I was 22. These are the kind of things, if you stay open, if you meet new people, that's what got me the opportunity and the invitation to play at these places. And I'll forever be grateful to the people that invited me and gave me that opportunity. But you know, there's just so much out there. There, This whole concept of retirement, let it go. Forget retirement. Just keep doing what you're doing, having fun. And if you're not having fun, do something else. Find something else to do and have fun.
0: For our younger engineers out there, what are the key skills that you've seen in your experience that they should develop to succeed with an employer if they're that type of uh, engineer that wants to work for these types of uh, businesses?
2: These are things I learned early on in my career, and they've really uh, become more and more important as I've developed and as my career unfolded. First of all, you have to get fluent in the financial part of your business as an engineer. Now, most engineers look at accountants and say, "Eh, well, you know, you can add and subtract. You don't even know how to divide, much less multiply. That's short-sighted. Take a course, uh, ask questions, learn something, read a book, learn about cost accounting, learn about financial statements, understand cash flow. Understand the whole idea of return on investments and return on assets. That will help you more than I can ever say in terms of your engineering career. If you understand the financial part of your business, that's going to make you smarter. That's going to make you more savvy. You'll make better decisions. It's just going to enhance your career dramatically. And it's not that hard to learn. That's the beauty of it. A good book and then maybe a seminar and maybe some videos, um, whatever it is, you can learn this. It's not that difficult. And number two, I would say you have to accept that marketing innovation, as I talked before about this comment by Peter Drucker years ago, They're the principal drivers of long-term value. And both of those disciplines, and I'll call them disciplines, marketing and innovation, it's a little widespread in terms of understanding, defining what they are, but they're ripe. Those areas, especially marketing, innovation, are ripe for engineers who don't want to sit at a desk every day and run numbers. If you can learn as an engineer how to market, you are 10 steps ahead of the next person. It's that critical. And if you know how to innovate, who comes to mind? And that's Steve Jobs, one of the greatest innovators we had in the 20th century. You know, if you can do that, some of that's inherent in your DNA. Some of that is also going to be learned skills. But if you can figure out how to do that and you're that type of person, boy, you've got a long runway ahead of you. And uh, these are really good things to know and understand and, and do. This is the last skill that I would underline and and really emphasize, is don't underestimate the value of showing up to work every day, outworking everybody else. If everybody else hits the door at five o'clock, you stay till six, okay? Put in an extra hour. Work an hour or two on the weekend. Because private industry is a very competitive environment, and you have to compete every day. And you're competing not only as a company against other companies or as a company against customers, but you're competing against the person that's sitting next to you, and whether it's a cubicle or office or whatever it is. You wanna make progress, you wanna do better in life for yourself or your family, you're gonna to have to work hard. You've gotta be there every day, you've gotta be willing to do everything in your power to make the organization succeed. Importantly, stay straight and true, no breaking the rules, no breaking the law, whatever, but work hard every day, And it really does pay dividends.
1: If you could offer the young engineers listening, so these are the ones who are just starting their career, what singular piece of advice would you want them to leave this podcast with? What is the one thing that coming away from this, because you have this breadth of knowledge in so many different disciplines and so many different areas of the industry You know, what single piece of advice, if they took one thing away, would you
2: want them to leave with? Every young person is going to, probably early in their career, face a time in their working career where they're going to struggle. And that could be intellectually, it could be in an organization, it could be with the person that's sitting next to you, relationship problems, and so forth. The one piece of advice I'd want to leave your listeners with is, if you're struggling for whatever reason in the situation that you find yourself in don't give up don't ever give up that's a winston churchill comment but don't ever give up okay cuz today's employers as opposed to you know 50 or 75 years ago they want their employees to succeed businesses make more money when their employees are successful and they do things of value so your employers want you to succeed for help if you're struggling ask for help from your peers your colleagues in other firms, perhaps, that you've met, your manager, maybe even your manager's manager, up the line. Don't sit there with a long face and fret and, and worry, struggle and struggle and struggle. It's, don't. If you want to get on the right track, recognize that people have hired you to succeed. They haven't hired you to fail. And if you put in the work, if you're serious about what you're doing, and if you really want to build a career, whether it be with one firm or 10 firms, don't struggle for long. Go out, seek help, ask a lot of questions, seek advice, develop relationships. That's going to help you through these difficult times. We all have these difficult times. It's just a matter of getting through them. On the other side is going to be success.
1: Thank you so much, Peter. We appreciate all of your feedback for today. And honestly, I think that was some of the best advice I've ever heard because. Lord knows, I think everyone has had a moment of struggle, and it's almost like that. You know, brush off the hands, just want to leave the situation. So thank you for that, and I hope our young engineers who are listening really take that to heart. Everyone wants to see you succeed. You know, no one wants to see someone fail, and especially your business, the company that you work for. There's a obviously the comments. I think where it's like it's more expensive to have turnover than it is to have someone who performs well. So.
0: It was great to have you on, and it's great to see someone that's had your experience and has, pretty much has gone through everything from all the different sides of business and dealing uh, with uh, different government businesses, and, and making relationships. So thanks for that. It's invaluable, I think, for younger engineers, especially like, all the business advice that you gave in terms of how important marketing and you know, making yourself more well-rounded. That's one of the ways that you can truly be of value to your firm. Uh, Like you were saying, like financials, that's really going to stick with me because if you know the financials, then you'll know how to really help your company from that side of things and and be innovative as well. So really appreciate it, Peter.
2: Well, I've thoroughly enjoyed speaking with both of you. I hope this podcast is helpful to the listeners. I want to let everybody know that if anybody would like to follow up with me one-on-one, I'd be happy to take their calls our website is lifespantechnologies.com. If you go to the right page, you'll find my uh, email and my phone number. And don't hesitate to call me. I'd love to talk to people. The more people I talk to, the more enjoyable life is. So I'll leave that open for your listeners. And I want to thank you both again for a very enjoyable interview. And I hope this podcast is not only enjoyable for everybody, but helpful.
1: Peter, thank you so much. And that is a shout out to all of our young engineers who are seeking mentorship. Peter has a great breadth of experience and would appreciate you reaching out to him. So thank you, Peter, for sharing that.
2: You're very welcome.
1: I hope you enjoyed the episode today. We would love to hear your feedback, comments, or any questions you may have. To leave them, please visit structuralengineeringchannel.com. There you will find a summary of the key points discussed today in today's episode, which is episode number 56, as well as any links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned during the episode. Don't forget to subscribe on the Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time, we wish you the best in all of your structural engineering endeavors.
0: The Structural Engineering Channel podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network. The opinions on the show are those of the hosts and guests, not their employers. For information on EMI's people and project management skills training programs for civil engineering professionals, visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org.